tuning into episode 92 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father, four ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. Okay, and do you want to learn how to be happy? Then head over to TonyOverbay.com and enter your email address right there next to in the middle somewhere where it says learn how to be happy. And you will be one of the first to hear the dates and details of a program that I am preparing to launch on how, in fact, you can learn to be happy. Um, For all of you Instagram folks, please find Virtual Couch there and follow. And for you YouTube folks, please find the Virtual Couch channel there. My guest today, Reed Ward. Our interview is up there, and you can always give a thumbs up, uh, likey thing to Tony Overbay, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist on Facebook as well. Okay, before I get to my interview today, a couple of quick items. Uh, Actually, a correction. Um, This is episode 92, so my last episode was 91. But in the intro, I said, welcome to episode 90. And uh, just trying to keep you on your toes. Seriously, though, thank you for there were plenty of people who wrote in and noticed that. And I love some of the some of the emails I got were, um, hey, you do a great job with the podcast. I don't want to be that person, but not sure if you noticed that you did this. And and uh, the funny part was I did kind of notice I'd already mastered the file and it was already uploaded. And, uh, you know, I so I'm blessed with a very busy practice and I was uh, I was ready to see clients. And so I just thought, I wonder if anybody will really notice. And so uh, so you did. But uh, always I, I love the feedback. I welcome the feedback. Um, but so, yeah, so that was uh, that was episode 91. I said it was episode 90. And if you haven't listened, episode 91, the last episode that was released earlier this week was with my daughter, McKinley Overbay, and she talked about her experience and challenges with depression. And I, I just have to say, I've, I've received more feedback in a couple of days since that release of that episode than I have from just about any episode I've done. And the common theme of the feedback, in addition to people saying extremely nice things about my daughter and how eloquent and presentable she is, which I agree, I know, I mean, that's a proud dad in me, um, is that it's a really good episode to to have your teen listen to if they're struggling with depression. And uh, and I am so grateful for that feedback. So please listen. And I, I have to tell you, uh, I put the videos up on YouTube and, you know, I don't have a big YouTube presence. I've got, I don't know, 40, 50 videos up there. And that's one of those things where the, you know, the imposter syndrome or the inner voice or all those things that are, you know, see that there's a, I don't have uh, millions of subscribers or, or tens of thousands of views. And, and that will then sometimes tell me, oh my gosh, is that the right, you know, I do, does anybody really care? Am I, you know, this imposter syndrome, which if we go into the world of acceptance and commitment therapy, my goal is just to put out content that I think will help people. So those thoughts, you know, um, are normal thoughts to have go through your brain. Are they productive? Are they workable thoughts toward my goal of creating content and doing something, um, AKA this podcast that I love and I am passionate about. They're not, they're not workable thoughts. So, uh, but I do know that this again with my daughter McKinley, it's one of the, I've actually received several, um, of in the emails where, and thank you for the video because, uh, here goes my old man, get off my lawn moment. Kids these days, apparently, um, even listening to a podcast is not a normal thing, which, uh, the podcast demographics are, are much older, um, people podcasts are growing like crazy. Um, but I didn't realize that a lot of teens and uh, that sort of thing aren't necessarily listening to podcasts. So the people are watching the interview with my daughter and me on my YouTube channel. So uh, you can go check it out there. I'm biased. I think my daughter is just absolutely beautiful. And you can, but you can see our back and forth on the video if you are so inclined. And uh, two quick, super quick answers to frequently asked questions I'm also getting. I still love and absolutely love what bloomforwomen.com is doing to help women heal from betrayal trauma. And, uh, but, and so they've actually opened up, from my understanding, the site no longer requires any kind of a fee. 
Um, their fee was low to begin with, but to access all the content. So please, please, please visit bloomforwomen.com if you are struggling with the betrayal of a spouse, um, a, an emotional affair, a physical affair, a uh, discovery of a spouse's pornography addiction. And there's so much positive, strength-based uh, information and videos and programs there on bloomforwomen.com. And then I still use Eli's Extracts every day. Uh, you can use coupon code virtual couch, all one word, at elis-extracts.com to receive 25% off your order. They're all natural, uh, organic, essential oil shaving creams for men and women. Um, the truth is I've been trying to keep the intro short and to the point and being honest, I have forgotten to mention them at times. I, I don't like to write down my intros. And so I honestly, this is, this is me. I get all excited and I don't mention them if I don't write them down. So, uh, and then, you know, then all of a sudden I'm into something and I, and I haven't thought about it. So, but I love and support both companies and what they're doing. Okay. Today's guest on this bonus episode. Why is this a bonus episode? It's because I'm just being so blessed with people who want to be on the podcast. People are reaching out to me. And so I'm starting to get uh, several podcasts in the bank. There's still solo podcasts that I want to do, topics I want to cover. So, uh, you know, I never, I, I don't want to, I want to be consistent with the content. I want to try to put out an episode at the beginning of every week. And, but I also don't want to get too far behind on this just wonderful, the content that, uh, that people are willing to share. So I want to start releasing some of the, uh, additional episodes later on in the week as bonus episodes. And man, I've been blessed to be on some, uh, I was on a national radio show a week or so ago and I got the video off of another radio show that I was on with, um, uh, with uh, Josh Shea, who's been on my podcast. I want to put that up there. And I've been on two or three podcasts um, in the last couple of weeks, and I want to put that content up here too. So more bonus episodes coming. Those will usually be in the second half of the week. But the bonus episode today is with Reed Ward. Reed is a licensed educational psychologist. And let me read a little bit of a background. This is off his website. If it sounds a little bit stiff, I apologize. I'll try to read um, Role of a Century, Role of a Lifetime. I'll get into this from an acting standpoint, make it sound like I this is my own. Uh, Reed has over 10 years experience conducting psychoeducational evaluations. Um, and that is key. What I love about this episode is if you have ever wondered, should my child be tested for autism or, um, you know, do, what are the signs of uh, autism spectrum disorder, also known as Asperger's, ADHD, uh, basically, um, Reed does about 10 minutes, I believe. I, again, I can never go back and listen to myself, uh, but I, I think we basically did a um, diagnosis of my ADHD uh, subattentive type on, I think Reed was, uh, he was there for me. Um, and so, but in Reed, in 2007, he completed his master's degree and began working as a school psychologist. So that's kind of uh, fun, my first school psychologist to have on, on the podcast. And then uh, he wanted to continually understand and learn how the mind works and how uh, testing and all these things would break down for an individual. And that led him to postgraduate studies in 2010 after successful completion of a competency-based program in school neuropsychology. He became certified through the American Board of School Neuropsychology. And uh, and that just kind of led him to further passion for working with this population um, in, in kind of the testing for kids, teens, that sort of thing. Uh, Reed, then he, as he kind of put, <laughs> Sarah was trying to act like it's all natural. It says here, as Reed began putting into practice the additional training, it became apparent how comprehensive assessments are beneficial to truly understand an individual's academic needs for the development of targeted recommendations. So again, if you've ever wondered if your kid needs an IEP or if they need uh, special accommodations or they're just, if they're, if they're struggling in school and you think that they, there might be a learning disability, Reed gets into all that in this podcast. And I really, I learned a lot there too. Um, but so that, that the, the testing can be um, beneficial so that your kid can get the right, um, the right help they need at school. So several more years in service of public school, then Reed went into private practice. 2015, Reed obtained a California licensure as an educational psychologist. And uh, so that, again, that, that's brought him into private practice. He talks on the podcast that he still does some work in the schools. 
Um, but in the private practice setting, he's able to do more thorough assessments than uh, are often done in the schools. He is passionate about being current in the research and sciences related to his profession, uh, enjoys helping people feel good about themselves as they learn about their unique uh, learning profile and increase their educational performance. And I think we really try to just uh, get into what testing can do. Um, we talk about the stigma of labels and uh, just think it's some really good advice. If you have kids and have ever wondered or, um, you know, if you know of somebody who maybe is, is gone back and forth under, they get their kids tested. Shouldn't they? Should they? We try to cover all that guilt, shame, stigma, everything. So without any further ado, let me uh, lead you on to the um, lead you on. Let me lead you on uh, to the interview with Reed Ward, licensed educational psychologist. Virtual couch. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah it's good to be so here. So you are a. I mean, I was kind of fascinated by it. You are a licensed educational psychologist. Yes, a LEP. Yes. Okay. Is there any jokes that go along with that? <laughs> a LEP. Yeah, there probably are. Okay, you don't hear a lot. I though, haven't the, heard of the them yet. Okay, <laughs> they don't um, say them to me. <laughs> okay, that's a good point, right? Maybe behind your back. Um, but so you are a school psychologist. Then is that a is that something that you were initially and then you became a LEP or are um, LEPs also school psychologists or how does that work? Yeah. So I started as a school psychologist and after you've been working for three years as a school psychologist in the state of California, uh-huh. you can become, uh, if you're credentialed, credentialed school psychologist, you can take the exam, the uh, California Board of Behavioral Science exam and become a, a licensed educational psychologist okay. in private practice. It's a similar kind of work that is done in the schools. So did you, how many years did you spend in the schools? Uh, it was about seven years. I began, it was in 2007. I began as a school psychologist. And then I became, um, I also became certified through the American Board of School Neuropsychology in 2010. And then I became a LEP or a licensed educational psychologist in 2014. Okay. So, I, you know, I've got questions about school psychologists. I remember, um, I think when I was a kid or even when some of my older kids were young, it seemed like there was a school psychologist uh, on campus at every school. I don't know if that was true. But then has that scaled back? I mean, did you cover multiple schools? Yes. Uh, every school district's a little bit different on how, how exactly they do it because, um, you know, the, the, the approach that the school district takes and things. But generally speaking, well, every school is going to have a school psychologist. And oftentimes they're there either once a week or twice a week okay. or every day of the week. So okay. it just depends on, on the school, the needs of the school. Yeah. What was your experience? Were you on campus daily at, at one particular school or did you, were you spread out? Uh, yeah, right now I work for the San Juan Unified School District, and I'm there four days a week. Okay. And I do private practice one day a week. So the four days that I'm there, I do Spanish assessments for the district one day. Uh-huh. And then um, then I have three different schools that I'm working at at this point. They're elementary and K-8 schools. Okay. So do you, I've always wondered this too, do you do you pretty much pull all the kids in at some point for as a school psychologist, or is it only the kids who, um, I don't know, do they get sent to the school psychologist or is it something that they seek out? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we can, we can work with clients or, or kids on, um, you know, as needed basis. For example, if, if a student is suicidal or okay. at risk for something, um, we can help them out initially if we're there and uh, get them set up with a, a therapist or someone along those lines to help them through that. So you do a lot of assessment then, really. I mean, never really yes. looked at it that way, right? Yeah, ninety-five percent of what we do is is assessment and being working with teams to to the team will share concerns for a student uh-huh. and you know what can we do to help and we'll be part of that team and then if it does go to special education assessment, they yeah. will we'll go ahead and test. 
Okay. For that. So, so after that assessment, then you're kind of putting resources together a lot of times. Yeah. Do you find, um, are most parents receptive to, do you reach out to a lot of the parents then? Is that your job after assessing with the kid? Yeah. I, I feel that uh, parents are receptive there. It's kind of a new process. Nobody wants their child to, to have a disability. Right. Um, but you know, we're there to kind of hold their hand through the process and, and share with them, uh, you know, what are the criteria that we're looking for? What, you know, what is, what exactly is a learning disability or whatever okay. the case may be. And then, um, just kind of working with them. So they're, they're actually, I find that they, um, tend to be grateful for, for the help that they get. And then, uh, you know, so it tends to be a very positive thing. Occasionally, though, someone is defensive is their child, so they'll right. go to bat for their child and things. And, and those can become a little bit trickier to, to, to win the trust of the person or to, you know, be on the, so that they, they know that you're on the same page as they are. So, okay, so I like that. That's, uh, I run into a lot of people that don't want a diagnosis or they, don't, they, look, they view a label as a bad thing. And then I also have clients that feel like, okay, a label is okay because then I know that... Uh, there's help or there's treatment available or I don't know, do you run into primarily more of um, the diagnosis is good? Mm-hmm. Okay. You do. Yeah, typically I do. And um, oftentimes that is because they're looking for extra services. Yeah. They're understanding my child is reading three books, three grades, three grades below um, their, their, their grade and you know, they need some extra help. And so they're just looking for that help. And so oftentimes they are looking for, or a disability, but you know, having that discussion can help them to see what exactly are we looking for. Okay. So, what are the and I was going to start going into a little bit of shop talk using the phrase "rule out," right? Is that yeah. big in your? Mm-hmm. Um, so, explain what what are what's a rule out? What are you typically doing in an assessment? So, in an assessment, I'm gathering data from different sources. I'll be interviewing with the the parent, the teacher, or teachers, and um, observations in the classroom interviewing with the student, doing testing with the student, things like cognitive testing, processing testing, um, getting their input on uh, rating scales to see if there's anxiety, depression, things along those lines, although we don't diagnose for those in the schools. Okay. Um, we, we do, we could, the reason why is we follow, it's uh, California Ed Code. Uh-huh. And so in California Ed Code, they have specific criteria, which is different from the outside diagnosis. So if you, if you go to your medical professional, a psychologist, a uh, therapist or anyone in those in those arenas, uh, you know, a lot of times they'd be diagnosing through the DSM. Yeah, exactly. Diagnoses and and when I do private practice, I can do either the DSM or the or the um, California Ed Code okay. diagnoses, um, specifically on the educationally related conditions. Okay, so um, so then you're looking at uh, during these tests, you're basically ruling out if there is a learning disability or rule out if it's uh, something like dyslexia or autism or ADHD or those sort of things. Yes. So there's certain markers that you know that, okay, if, if these answers go this way, we're looking at this or, mm-hmm. okay. So you, what were the tests, the types of tests that you talked about again? You do cognitive, you do what else? Yeah. Uh, cognitive processing. And uh, so processing could be a lot of different ones. We okay. can have auditory processing, visual processing, there's cognitive processing. There's uh, so with the like uh, auditory processing. What what's an example of something you're looking at? They are testing. How does that work? Yeah, for auditory processing, we're looking to see with with what they're hearing, uh, especially like speech sounds and things like that. With what they're hearing, is it breaking down to where they don't understand it? Um, maybe they have good hearing, so they they pass the the audiological exam and they they have good hearing. Um, 
we're just giving this a hypothetical case, yeah. but and then in this case, maybe maybe the child does not know how to discriminate sounds. For example, is this word the same or is this different? Because because well, this, that's the same. And then there's that's like a very fundamental level, uh-huh. and then it kind of goes up from there to where it's like okay, well, they can discriminate different sounds, and now can they manipulate those sounds? Okay, okay what so, is that like? Give me an example of that. Yeah. Okay, so one of them we'd say like say cowboy, and they say cowboy, and then you say. Uh, now say it without cow, and then they say boy. Okay. And so kind of pulling pieces out of words and, and doing that, that's kind of an important piece for, for reading. Okay. So some people, if they have a, uh, would it be then an auditory processing disorder where, um, like you're saying, they can't then separate the words or they can't? Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm always, I'll hear clients say, I have an auditory processing disorder, and I don't really know what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, So they might, might hear something and then process it completely different than the meaning. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yeah, and it, it could break down at any level along those lines, but but that's exactly what it is. Just breaking down on one of those fundamental fundamental levels of what they're hearing. Okay. And then do you uh, and then like a cognitive test? What are you looking for there? Yeah. So cognitive tests, uh, it's it's kind of they're testing things. For example, a common one is the whisk. Okay. And the whisk, um, and you know, you you also maybe I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of this stuff, but. Um, and so they're great questions, by the way. Okay, so like with the WISC, for example, you have verbal comprehension. You also have fluid reasoning. Okay. And then you have um, working memory, processing um, speed. So it's kind of a combination of different things. And then there's other tests, um, Woodcock-Johnson, that, that kind of go into. There's the, the science is really becoming much more advanced over the last, even the last five or ten years. And it's really heading in a great direction. So a lot of the test kits uh-huh. are following a lot of that research about where does cognition, where does it break down, where, where is it good, you know, where, where are the challenges with okay. it? Okay, so, so the you know, people that are listening then, I'm sure there are people with young children that are, if their kid is reading something and then they quiz them on it and the kid says he doesn't understand, uh, I wonder, are a lot of parents trying to, is he just, is he just not, does he not care about the material or is it that he truly doesn't understand or so I mean, is that kind of what you're trying to work with? Exactly, and, and breaking it down, so in that kind of case, I'd be looking to see, are there attention challenges? Maybe is there ADHD or ADD? Is there attention processing, which is actually a little bit different from ADD and ADHD? Okay. And um, What's know, the difference? And, I, yeah. and now I'm going all over the map. I apologize. Right. But now I'm realizing, okay, this is good stuff because um, I know a lot of parents, really, they really do. They can get frustrated that they're, they don't feel like their kids care or that they're not doing their homework or that they're, you know, it's all about the video games or, uh, or I don't know, texting friends. But then sometimes I'll talk to a, a teenager, for example, and they'll say, I really don't understand. And, and you know, and, and how far back did that go? And could they have gotten help early on? Yeah. Yeah. So the difference, and um, I also want to point out one other thing too. Mm-hmm. So in that case, I'd be looking for the, is it like ADHD symptoms? Is it auditory pro- or attention processing challenges? Or is it auditory processing? Because they, they kind of can look very similar. Okay. And even dyslexia can kind of look, there's a lot of similarities to all of those. So the comprehensive assessment is, is important to figure out where are their skills in each of those areas. So what is the difference between, you know, going back to your question, yeah. what is the difference between um, ADHD and auditory, and, I'm sorry, attention processing? So ADHD um, can be defined different ways, but one of them being, um, you know, according to the, the DSM, we're looking at the ability to basically pay attention and impulsivity, distractibility, and things along those lines. And if they have the hyperactivity part two with that, then they have the combined type. Mm-hmm. If they don't have the hyperactivity, it's it's the, the ADHD inattentive type. So you're looking at those. And then with the difference between, okay, so there's that. That's okay. kind of one definition following the DSM. Yeah. 
And then there's also um, a lot of new research as well that's coming out. Like for example, Barclay's a, a, a big uh, a big name in, in understanding a lot of executive functions, as well as uh, Dr. George Miklowski is another really big good. There's a lot of really good research out there about executive functionings um, and things. And, and speaking just kind of in general terms before I mention what what they talk about. Um, when we think of executive functions, a lot of times we're looking at that as being an area of deficit. And this is executive functioning of the brain. Is that the way that? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and it's uh, it you know, in uh, from the school neuropsych perspective, we're looking more of the frontal lobe kind of challenges, you know, um, for executive functions, and they have to do with initiating organization and planning. Okay. Those are kind of the traditional ones that you hear for executive functions, and then um, some of the research that's coming out. Um, you know, Barkley talks about how the ADHD brain is, is this is just my simplification sure. of it all. Yeah. But, you know, you have like the, the needle on like a car battery um, where, you know, it can kind of go like one way or the other. Yeah. The ADHD brain is kind of like, it's either shut off or on hyperspeed a lot of times. So there's that regulation. Okay. Difficulty, both <clears throat> cognitive regulation and, and um, emotional regulation. Both of those are, so Barkley's, you know, kind of one of those names, but there's, there's several others who are, we're doing a lot of really good research on that kind of thing and stuff. And then there's uh, George McClousey, who's also breaking down how an executive function is kind of like a CEO of a company. Okay. And you have the CEO and then you have um, at each you know, maybe division or branch or, or location, you're going to have a manager and then you're going to have um, all of the employees who work for each one. And each one has a function. The CEO may say, okay, we're going to have a new product. We're going to try to make this really good. And then each of the, the managers are going to say, okay, well, you know, I want this person to work on this, this person to work on this, this person to work on this. And then each of the employees, they're going to know, okay, well, my job is specifically do this task. Okay. And they go through that. And so, and so looking at it in that way, the brain is kind of like that too. And where sometimes it breaks down for a child, they may have executive function challenges to where they, it may break down of like, okay, the CEO level, like, okay, I'm not really telling the rest of my brain, like, like so if I, have a, if I have a pretty crummy CEO, yeah, or I could have a crummy mid-level manager. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on where, um, and and you're trying to figure out. I don't know who's yeah. who's dropping the ball. Yeah, or right. is it a skill deficit? Is it the employee that just doesn't know what they're doing yet? Okay, and either way, whatever it is, you're training them from there how yeah. to how to ask the right questions and how to get through that. Okay, okay, I love that. Now I'm I'm thinking now. Of course, my and I, I just recorded a podcast that. Uh, um, answering some questions and someone had asked me, I'll talk about my ADD moment in a podcast. And they said, do you really have uh, ADD? And, and, and I do, but I mean, and then I went into the, what you talked about, it's ADD is no longer a thing, right? It's ADHD in a type. Is that what it is? Right. Um, but I think I've had a, I think I had a bum CEO, right? I, I don't know. I don't really need to fire him or can you get him training? I mean, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's all about asking the right questions. Okay. Yeah. And so a lot of us have those symptoms as well. Okay. So, uh, you know, and are you okay kind of going into the that ADHD or ADD world a little bit deeper? Sure. Okay. So um, you talked about the different kinds of ADHD, and I am curious. So one of the questions I get a lot is, um, what's the difference between just a, a hyper kid, you know, just a rambunctious, you know, fun-loving, sugared-up kid versus someone with ADHD? Yeah. Uh, so the difference really would be, is the child, you know, able to to pay attention, hear what they're hearing? Uh, some some child, some children who are hyperactive may still be catching everything going on around them. Okay, they understand what's going on. So if they're able to do those kinds of things really well, then very likely they don't have ADHD or ADD or ADHD in this case. Um, and also, so if they're able to pay attention, and also if they're able to use those executive functioning skills, 
um, that we were talking about, about the initiating, planning, and organizing. Gotcha. If they're able to do those kinds of things, then it's more of the hyperactive, just the just the kid that's a kid. Got a lot of energy. Yeah, with a high motor. That makes sense. So if he maybe seems like he's bouncing off the walls, he or she, and uh, but then when it really boils down to it, they're able to, I mean, I liked what you were saying, they could... Uh, they can plan, they can organize, those kind of things are in place. Then we just got a, we got a high motor kit. Yes. Okay. So it's when those things break down that that's when maybe a, somebody needs to look at help. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I love you. you sent over some, uh, some good notes ahead too. And I like the part, can you talk a little bit more about, I think then if someone then goes and gets the child assessed, first of all, what does that assessment look like to a kid, an ADHD assessment? Yeah. An ADHD assessment. So, um, so in the schools, um, the schools don't diagnose for ADHD, but they can look to see, well, if there are ADHD, if there's a diagnosis of the child or if, um, you know, if there's a symptomatology, they're, they're going to be looking in within the ed code criteria, but they're not going to be diagnosing an actual ADHD diagnosis. Um, so, but yeah, we, so in the private practice, you know, for, for anyone assessing in these areas, typically we're looking at, um, you know, I, for me personally, at this point, I'm doing nine hours, up to nine hours, nine hours of testing for, okay. for a comprehensive assessment. And um, it includes interviews with parents, oftentimes with teachers, um, and interview with the student or the client, and also doing testing. So I always start with a cognitive test, uh -huh. and then I do an academic test, too. And then I start looking at which areas in the cognitive and academics are showing well. Okay. well and then I, I do more testing in those areas for either auditory, visual or some other, uh, and there's phonological is another one that we, we What's that one? Well. it has to do with the speech sounds. Okay. So are the speech sounds breaking, breaking down at any point? And that's an important one when we're looking, <clears throat> excuse me, when we're looking at dyslexia, we're always, um, that's, you know, there's been some, uh, some really good breakthroughs with, you know, the, uh, some of the uh, changes that have been going on through legislation and, and things for, for dyslexia assessments. And so now the schools actually have a, one of the categories is called phonological processing where a student can qualify, which oftentimes correlates with, with the dyslexia piece. Okay. And I think that uh, I just had a little epiphany here. I know when I'm sitting in therapy um, in sessions with clients, I mean, if I'm doing this work all day, every day, uh, I'll pick up on things that maybe that person just kind of looks at as normal, I guess. I hate using the word normal, but um, but then, you know, that might be a sign to me of uh, not necessarily having been modeled a healthy relationship, for example, mm -hmm. or that sort of thing. So I'm wondering if does the same exist in your world where someone comes into you and a parent might say, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they really have any struggles. But then as soon as you um, interview the child or you, you know, get them to read or the first time, you know, do you recognize kind of immediately that that uh, there are some things that need to be addressed? Yes, occasionally. Um, I, I find that oftentimes parents in, in my, in my uh, world and in, in this type of assessments and things, I find that most parents are intuitive of their okay. children and they, they have a pretty good idea. I think my kid's got some challenges with attention. And then it's more of the specifics. Well, is it the attention? Is it the executive function? Is gotcha. it the, the auditory processing? But they can kind of get me in the right ballpark. Okay. So I find that usually at the end of the, the assessment, it's kind of confirming what they were saying. Uh -huh. It's just giving a little more specifics of, of where exactly is that breaking down and then how, how do we help them? Okay. Do you, uh, kind of a tangent here, but if you're sitting around and you see a kid and he's, I don't know, he's just constantly, you know, hammering his leg up and down or he's uh, picking at things or fidgety. I mean, are you diagnosing, I mean, in your head? 
Um, occasionally, yeah. not, not, not too often, uh, but, you know, occasionally, you know, usually in the first 30 seconds, a lot of times you can tell, yeah. like, okay, person may have, you know, some ADHD, which a lot, again, a lot of us do, a lot of CEOs of companies have, yeah. have ADHD, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's just a matter of being aware of it. And then how, what are the challenges that tend to happen with that? And then how, how do we tend to help them to be yeah. successful with it? Okay. On the medication piece, so I think in particular with the ADHD, a lot of the, do you feel like the tendency is to, to kind of lead with the medication? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think it's a great question. I think um, it's kind of a case-by-case thing. There's, you know, controversy on both sides. I will say from the experts' points of views, um, you tend to hear um, that the research supports uh, ADHD medication. When it, and the way I look at it is if it's affecting the student's self-esteem or the yeah. child or the person, the adult, if it's affecting our self-esteem, our ability to function, our success and that kind of thing, then it may be worth considering. Mm. Um, and if, if we're looking for more of the behavioral approach, like how do we help the person without jumping to there, then that's also an option. Um, and looking at ADHD, I like to give an example. Um, if you have a person with, you know, say ADHD, say your child, you know, you're like, okay, I think, you know, there may be some ADHD here. Um, and, and you say, okay, I'm going to give you $20 if you just read to me this page and tell me what it says, right? Mm. Highly motivated. They're focused. They want to do their best. They're reading it. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. When they're, as soon as they're done with it, they're about to say it and they have the trouble with the initiating and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and they just freeze up and they don't know what to say. And that's so often the case for ADHD. And there's those kinds of just difficulties that, that tend to happen for that. And so teaching them how, so breaking down the task is really where it's at too. Okay. Is um, saying, okay, well, right now he, he's not really good at, at reading a page and just telling me what it is. But what about reading for 30 seconds? I like that. And then say, okay, at the last or in the end of 30 seconds, say, okay, what do you remember? And then they'll say, well, honestly, I don't remember anything. And they're probably a little embarrassed about it. And then say, oh, no problem. Good. Thank you for your effort. Let's try again. Reread the same passage for 30 seconds. After 30 seconds, what do you remember? Okay, I remember there was this in the story. Oh, good job. Let's reread it. And so what we're doing is training them how to, to summarize, because summarizing tends to be a very difficult thing for a lot of people with ADHD. Okay. So then in that scenario, you're saying you could lead with the behavioral modification mm-hmm. and see where that gets you. Yeah. 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 Um, you would also share some, some good data, though, on as far as medications go, um, they tend to have, the ADHD medications tend to have better results, though, than others. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The research says it's about over 50% success rate, meaning that that it's reported that uh, a big difference in um, in their ability to pay attention and and those challenges that they would be having with it, you know. But I do speak with a lot of uh, people who take ADHD medication. A lot of kids and a lot of people don't really like it. It kind of slows them down and, and things. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, it, it is a case by case thing. There's, you know, we're looking at from like the brain's perspective of like what's going on and stuff. There's different neurotransmitters, different chemicals. Yeah. You know, we have the dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, and you know, those kinds of neurotransmitters can can be, you know, maybe not enough or too much and things. So some of the theory behind it all is that you know you give them certain medications and then it increases one, decreases another, kind of like that equalizer on the on the stereo, yeah. try to get the right amount. Right. Um, so that's one way. And another way that, that it's worked with too through medication, a lot of times we hear of stimulants. Yeah. And stimulants would be kind of what we were talking about before about the, the needle. Um, it's like the brain for the ADHD person could be shut off. And then all of a sudden it's like, 
okay, now we're talking about something I'm interested in and knowledgeable about. Boom, now it's on hyperspeed. Gotcha. And then it's back over here. And, and a lot of times that movement and, and a lot of movement and things can be to help self-regulate. To yeah. keep, keep things kind of in the optimal range. So that stimulant medication also helps with, you know, again, the theory behind that is that the stimulant medication would help to kind of keep that in the optimal range. Okay, that, that's perfect. And I uh, being very vulnerable. Um, so then, yeah, when I, I I've taken the ADD, the stimulant medications, mm -hmm. and uh, and when I remember the first time, it was almost like I didn't even know that I had that amount of focus on things, and I never thought of it that way. Of if it was something I cared about, something that was exciting, I'm in. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the problem, and, and I deal with a lot of executives in, in my practice. And they're, they're looked at as these brilliant entrepreneurs, but then people come in behind them and finish or complete the work. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people that, I, that I've spoken to and what my experience was, was I could start the heck out of a lot of projects, but then not finish. I think it's because I didn't like that part. You know, mm -hmm. I enjoyed the, the creative part. I enjoyed the exciting part, mm -hmm. but I didn't like that minutia. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, and then um, when you mentioned earlier, then that can actually then, uh, you know, untreated ADHD, I know in, in the adult world in particular, the symptoms mimic depression because then you start to get down on yourself because you haven't yeah. finished the project that you thought you were passionate about, but really you were passionate about the beginning or some of the, the, the fun parts, right? Absolutely. Okay. And I think that's, these are reasons why that a lot of CEOs of companies and things are very successful people and very smart people have yeah. ADHD. Um, and I think the reason, one of the benefits of, if there are benefits, and there's drawbacks too, sure. but, you know, there's challenges that we, we, we all face. But one of the benefits is that um, oftentimes people who have ADHD, just from my impressions and my experiences, tend to have a good um, awareness of the things that they become passionate about yeah. because they look at it from a lot of different angles a lot of times. Yeah. And, um, you know, they can, again, I've tested people who are just brilliant and have, have ADHD. So it has nothing to do with intelligence. Right. It's just a matter of, of that brain engagement, you know, of, of, you know, what things are interesting, if it's interesting they can know it super well. Yeah. If, if, if it's not, then, and it makes sense too, from a level, if it's not really something that's going to be relevant, like why spend, invest our time in that? Right. Where, and I love that, you know, and especially maybe in the educational setting, that's what I run into is that, or maybe a non ADHD brain, the, the, it, what it's, well, that's because what we're supposed to do. I mean, we're supposed to pay attention in class and we're supposed to do our homework. And I will hear um, a lot of maybe ADHD types say, yeah, I don't care about that. So yeah, what you just said, why should I waste my time or, but it's really, is it because they can't get the needle to go up in those, those areas. And, and what you're sharing is actually very similar to when I'm, when I went through grad school and hearing about these classes, half of us were in there going, Oh, I struggle with that one. Oh yeah. Oh, I struggle with that right. one. So the more we understand, we're like, well, and there's kind of this, um, all of us struggle with it to some degree yeah. or another. It's when it gets in the way of, of our uh, building our confidence, yeah. you know, where, where it really affects our self-esteem and things like that. Then we start looking at, at the actual diagnosis and it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's more of a, a thing of uh, you know, just getting the help that we need. Cause yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm smiling because uh, I just hijacked this with, uh, Reed, help me understand my ADHD, right? So, uh, well done. That was uh, well. But, but that's help. been my career is, okay. is going through this to learn. <laughs> if I can help myself, I can help someone else. Right? In a more intimate moment, little did Tony know he would be assessed today on my podcast. That was the whole. You were set up for you, Reed. My wife sent you, and it was to to go through this. All right. Well done. Um, well, I assessed myself through the whole thing too. <laughs> I love hearing that too because in graduate school as a therapist, I mean, every class you took, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, that's me. You know that. And then it's like, this will be my modality forever. I'll be this type of therapist. Then the next class rolls around and, 
oh my gosh, that's me, you know, and now I'm going to do this. And so I did, it's kind of interesting to hear that uh, in your line of work, you guys are doing the same thing. Oh yeah. We're all autistic and, <laughs> okay. and ADHD. And, okay. And, and I have uh, childhood issues, attachment issues, um, you know, all these things, right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm identifying each one of those too. Okay. I love that you mentioned um, autism. So that, that is another one that I think in my questions uh, when I was kind of sharing some questions with you before we met, I feel like there has been a rise in um, maybe it's just awareness around mm-hmm. autism. And so I think in my question, I had asked you, are more people, be, you know, be, be, not becoming, but are there more autistic people or are we just more aware of autism? I think it's a great question. Everybody's asking that question. The experts are asking that question, you know, and, and they're, the, um, the jury's still out on that. They're trying to figure it out. And uh, there are theories out there to, to try to explain it. Uh-huh. Nothing's been fully confirmed and accepted by, by the community at large. Um, but at this point, you know, it seems like every couple of years we hear, you know, it was one in 200, one in 100, okay. one in 50. And, you know, it's, it's now kind of in that ballpark of like one in 50 something, depending on which okay. studies and things. So if you read that, then one would say, oh, it's on the rise, mm-hmm. but then it might be what's the assessment tool or the population we're reaching out to or. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are we being more specific too? Exactly. Um, so, so those are exactly the same questions we're having. And, um, there's, there's a book I recently read, it's called The Myth of Autism, and it's kind of interesting because he also takes in some research from a completely outside view of, of what are, you know, some of the explanations as well as what it, what it could be. Um, I, you know, as an educational psychologist, though, I, I wouldn't be able to uh, subscribe to any of those kinds of theories because mm-hmm. that's all it is at this point. But, you know, over the passage of time, I think that will be flushed out to figure out what what exactly is is going on is is there a rise in it because of inherent disability uh-huh. you know, is the increase of the disability increasing. Okay. And you, I think you said, what, what do you, if a parent thinks their kid may be on the autism spectrum. And I also want to mention too, I know, and I think it was the DSM five where we don't even say Asperger anymore, right? Yeah. It's autism spectrum disorder. Yes. What, how does Asperger's fit into that? Yeah. Asperger's um, is, is, so honestly, a lot of people that I like listening to, you know, the really smart people, yeah. you know, from like Caltech, MIT and all these schools, a lot of them, I don't, I mean, it's not everybody who goes to those schools is autistic or Asperger's or anything, but, but a lot of really, really brilliant people are, um, do have Asperger's or ADHD and, or I'm sorry, Asperger's or autism. Um, but you know, how, how's it differentiated? Um, so at this point, again, like you said, it's, it's no longer in the DSM of, Something separate, um, right? Something separate. It's all combined all together in, into one one thing. And so we'd just be looking at maybe higher functioning autism or or lower function. Okay. Oh, gotcha. So would the would Asperger's now or Asperger's of old, is that now high functioning autism? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So all right, take me into the world of so a parent is wondering, is my child on the autism spectrum? What are they looking for? What are they what are they coming to you and saying, I noticed this? Yeah. So oftentimes, um, so I usually, my, the bulk of my experience is with, with, with uh, children or adults anywhere from like um, five years old and, and up from there. Um, but I do know I've, I've spoken with uh, uh, psychologists, educational psychologists who work with little children as well. What, a lot of things that they share is that the child is having difficulty with tracking. So meaning, um, or um, for example, if, if the parent says, oh, look at the airplane and, you know, points up in a direction and the, the child with autism may not look at that airplane. Okay. So it's that joint attention, not the tracking, but the joint attention difficulty. Okay. Um, you know, 
there's there's things too. I mean, this is not a dead giveaway of whether a person has autism, but eye contact can be. You okay. know, seven research says about seventy percent of people with autism have poor eye poor eye contact. Okay. You know, there could be other reasons too. You know, gathering the thoughts and things like that too. No, but I mean, it's not even if you start kind of putting together the picture, right? Yeah. So the I kind of you often hear of the the phrase um, what is it? Uh, Social skills, they, they not, uh, is that? I'm glad you, you pointed okay. that out because that's where I was going to go next. Okay. So, yeah, because um, that's where it's really at too is, um, so with social skills, there's social perceptions, understanding of, you know, a lot of times we can walk into a room and we can get a feel for the room. You know, if, if the room is, is healthy and everybody's happy and content and treating each other with respect, you know, there's a certain feeling a lot of times in the room. Most people can kind of walk in and be like, yeah, I can feel what the mood is. Then you walk into another environment, maybe you walk into like a court session and everything's oh, tense. Yeah. And you can just, just by walking in the room, you can get that vibe right, right away. Um, people, a lot of times who struggle with autism, struggle with any of that perception. So they, they don't read, they don't read the room. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that makes, okay. And, and they wouldn't understand people's emotions and perceptions. Um, although you can work with it and, and help them with, with those things and teach them, you know, teach them how to get eye contact and teach them like how to understand people's emotions and, and things um, but it's more of a, they call it like more of an explicit instruction of like explaining like step by step. Like how can, how can you develop those skills? Is that hard to do with young kids? Do you feel like? Yeah, I think it is. Um, although I, I have also seen a lot of success with it when, you know, if, if a parent just kind of, uh, you know, guides the child to where they can learn to, to try to pay attention, looking at their eyes and okay. trying to, you know, okay. try to pay attention to them. And I have to say the, one of the experiences I had early in my career, and I just, I, I love this, but I had a, an adult come to me and they said that they were on the spectrum at that point, I think they just said they had Asperger's and they were uh, talking about at work that they didn't feel connected. And, and they were with that awareness, they were so good at, there was a situation once where um, this person talked about being in a group of people and um, then finding the conversation didn't interest them. So they just left in the middle mm-hmm. of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And they were saying basically like, I, I'm guessing that's bad, you know, and, and it, because then everyone else around them viewed that as, okay, sorry to you know bother this person, right? Because he just left. And then he also mentioned once where he would respond with movie quotes a lot because he remembered every quote from every movie that he ever watched. And when people didn't join him with the movie quotes or laughing about it, and they would say, I don't remember that quote. He took that as a personal slight. You know, and so then we're talking in here about, yeah, you know, I've seen a bunch of movies. I can't remember movie quotes. And I remember it was kind of this epiphany where he, he, I think maybe because we had the rapport or trust, or then he said, oh, I just assumed that when someone said that they don't remember the movie, that they didn't like me, you know? Right. Yeah. And people with autism tend to struggle with the abstract. So they have a very difficult time with, with those kinds of things. And so it's always very concrete, very literal. It's, you know, this is the way it is and not understanding that there's also other dimensions to you know, to any, any given subject, exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. So um, a test for then if you're, if you are assessing for uh, autism, what do you, what's that one look like? So um, yeah, I would, I would do interviews with the, the parent. If, if there's a parent, depending on the dynamics of the, who the client is, I would interview with, with um, the parent if possible, with the teacher if possible with um, the client themselves and just kind of get a sense of where a lot of background information, okay. developmental history, any prior diagnoses, accidents, birth, traumatic birth, anything like that. Um, how's their health and, and all of that. And then go into um, assessment. I would also do a comprehensive assessment for, for most of my clients. Um, 
you, you know, um, I would do a cognitive test and then also I would do an academic test too with that. It's kind of like a, a standard getting a lot of information of where do they struggle. A lot of people with autism struggle with the writing. Okay. So, you know, where, where's that at? Where's that breaking down? And then, um, and then I'd also be doing processing tests as well. And then the key difference too, is I'd be also including autism assessments. There's, there's an ADOS It's kind of considered the gold standard of, of autism assessment. It's a uh, structured interview format to where you have like 10 different scenarios, about 10 different scenarios where, you, you know, in this kind of scenario, how does the person react? How do they understand? Like if they're at a party, you know, do they understand like people, you know, having a bite of the cake and like, you know, everybody gets like different, different, you know, everybody uh -huh. gets to participate with that and things. Okay. How do they, because what, what would the, you know, uh, autistic, um, what, how, I was to say autistic brain would do what in that situation where they just eat all the cake. I mean, or, or what's the, yeah, they could okay. do that or just like not even share or not even participate. Just something, anything that would be maybe just not quite what social was, norms or yeah, kind of social norms would, would be a piece of it and just kind of see in all these different scenarios, how do they, they respond. So it's kind of a structured way to quantify and then, and then you score them based on those. Okay. And then and do you find that there's a, I mean, is there a lot of, help now in schools for things like someone gets an autism diagnosis? So um, yes and, and no. I mean, it depends on the school. Okay. Um, so every school can be different. And it, it depends on the resources of the school. Like, you know, how much resources do they have for the different programs and things. But it also depends on who's administering them, their knowledge level, their, you know, maybe their patients and all this. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into that. But but you can tell a big difference from school to school depending on who's at the, who's at the school and how how that they're working with them. The, the the benefit, the positive part is that there's that term of neuroplasticity to where yeah. their brain's making new connections all the time. Okay. And, and, and you know, and so with that, then um, the, the good thing is that's why early intervention is such a big piece of this is because once we identify where the challenges are, then the earlier we can start helping them, you know, there's, uh, you know, for example, and this is a little bit of a detour, but um, with with dyslexia, there's research now showing that um, the the brain patterns of someone with dyslexia actually can change with through interventions, especially oh, wow. if you get them early, okay. early on. Um, and so, because those brain patterns can change, um, it's there's a lot of movement in a lot of these kinds of disability arenas to where the more you can work with it and uh, develop those skills, then um, the more you can help someone with these. I, I mean, I love that and a call for early intervention. Of course, if someone didn't get early intervention, it's not too late and we still want to mm -hmm. uh, help in that way. But I do feel like a lot of times um, it goes back to earlier when we were talking about are people afraid of a label, mm -hmm. but if the label gets you the, the help you need, mm -hmm. then is that, is that worth it? I guess. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's really the magic question is, is it, how is it affecting their self-esteem and yeah. things like that? And, and sometimes having that label is just, here's an answer to a question and now I can go forward. And it's kind of like having diabetes. It's a little bit different because it's, you know, um, but, it, but in the sense of if, if I know I have diabetes, then if I eat right, sleep right and exercise right, then I can take care of it. So that's not really a yeah. problem. And so the same thing kind of idea with, you know, with a lot of uh, learning disabilities is, is the more that we have awareness of it and working on those things. The brain is not a muscle, but it's kind of like it. The okay. more we work it out, the more we exercise different things, um, the better it is for you. Um, I, I'm jumping off a little bit here, but I love you had some comments about can you improve memory? So when you talk mm -hmm. about that, talk about that. I liked what you shared there in the notes. Yeah. So, um, I've, you know, there's, I've read several books on it and um, 
talk to people, you know, my grandfather, he had perfect memory, really in high school, all this stuff and never studied, you know? So there's just certain people that just like have these skills and and do these things that are just like, wow, how do you have perfect memory? Most of us can't remember, you know, what we had for breakfast in the morning, you know? And um, so I'll talk to people like, like that. And and just generally speaking, and there's several, you know, um, I lived in Mexico for two years and and, uh, one of the people that I worked with, he, um, he had, photographic memory he had remembered every you know you take a book and he'd remember any page any any word on it anything like that so you know you ask people certain trends and and what i find is that people who do have those amazing skills of like perfect memory they tend to start really you can start at any age even at like 40 50 whatever okay you start at any age but if if you have a systematic approach to where every day you're working on that skill you're going to develop it and what I was doing when I was going through school is um, I started memorizing a passage. For me, it was a scripture, but it could be like a quote or it could be really anything. Um, but I would memorize one a day. And then after a year, what I found was my memory got phenomenal. Didn't really. So I could just read just about anything and, and quote it word for word. Oh, I, then, my, my memory, my, my thoughts just went, I, I lost you there, Reed. It's like, I'm, I'm never, it's, oh, I can do this, Reed? I mean, I'm not too old? No, okay. Not too old. All right, keep going. It's all about the, yeah, I'm excited. Okay. Right. I know it's exciting to me too. In fact, I'm starting to do this again um, where I'm memorizing things. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's kind of like this more, the more we use that. So it's a consistent effort. So first, when I did this before, after I would spend about a half an hour a day trying to memorize one verse, you know, a day. And at first it was grueling. I was like, oh, I can't remember any of this stuff. But yeah. then, you know, after a while, it's after three months, it's like, okay, read it for like five minutes. And now I, I got it. Wow. Then after six months, it was like, read it, you know, a couple times and I pretty much get it. After a year, I, I pretty much, I could just remember it, it very easily after just one reading. And then um, what I found, though, is that my memory, when I got to that point of a year, Mark, I could then remember things that I had learned way before. Wow. So, what, and what I've also learned is that from just, you know, and I haven't studied the research on this, so, I, you know, I can't speak authoritatively on this, yeah. on this particular point here about, about um, most of us you know, we, most of us have, as long as we don't have a memory issue, mm. again, this is, I'll try to get to the point I'm trying to make, but <laughs> yeah. as long as, yeah, as long as if, if we have a mem- memory issue, it's usually breaking down with the recall. So we can usually create the memory, you know, like they call it encode store the memories, uh-huh. but it's the recall where we usually struggle okay. with. And so if we struggle with the recall, that's usually where it is. It's like, okay, where in my brain do I have this information? Mm. Right. And most of us, that's where it is for most of us, unless there's a, you know, amnesia or some kind of disability related yeah. to memory, then it, then it can make it more complicated. But for most of us, that's the way that would be. Um, so it's that systematic approach. There's a, a really good book. And, um, and I think I may have even included it in your notes. Yeah. And I apologize. Uh, for that. Quantum memory power. Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was one that I liked um, because he, he, first of all, he's really successful at this. He was started when he was either 30 or 40. He was watching and, you know, was it like, I think he was watching an infomercial and uh-huh. was like, okay, they can memorize all these cards. He started doing this and then he became really good at it. He started entering competitions and then he became like an international wow. you know, champion and stuff of memory and just, you know, remembering all kinds of crazy things, phone books and stuff like that. Oh, wow. You know, right. um, which, you know, but um, the, the, the cool thing is that he says that, and you hear this in general, just people from memory, like who are good at memorizing things is there's always more ability ability to remember more like it's not like you just clog up your mind like oh i can't i remembered everything now i don't remember yeah more um so at this point i'm I'm actually doing these tricks of memorizing things and i'm I'm also doing things of because what i found last time is that i was really good at regurgitating information but 
processing that information into a conversation was always a little bit more difficult. Oh, okay. Because it's like, yeah, I could, okay, I can recall all of that. But a lot of times it's hard to bridge that gap when if you're just using these memory strategies that like in that book, if you, if you use those memory strategies, it may be hard to like, okay, how does this link to any conversation? Right, right. Unless you're like, okay, I remember this and it was over here. And, you know, and um, so in essence, I think the simple way to look at it is if you just work on that, if you want to build that skill, work on it consistently over time and stick with it. And after about two years, you know, um, my grandfather said that after about two years, he thought that just about anybody could could develop that skill. Okay, I want to try this, right? Yeah. We, will, we will be meeting again in two years, Reed, and I will uh, you know, send me notes. I'll have them memorized. So maybe a phone book. I'll go through it all. Oh, great. I'll go, the phone books are tiny now, so that might not be as big of a deal. <laughs> That's right? true. Um, I love that, though. That really is good. It, it, a quick question, and then uh, and then I know we've uh, we got to wrap things up. Um, well, a couple of them. You do... In your private practice, you do a pediatric neurocognitive assessment. So pediatric, I think of young kids. Is that true? Or yeah. how, and what are you looking for? How young? Yeah. What's that? So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for, um, so my training with American, uh, it is a really good training. It's um, leading experts in, many of the leading experts in things like reading, like Dr. Stephen Pfeiffer, uh, George McClowski with, with uh, executive functions. And there's a lot of them. Uh, Dr. Flanagan, and they're just, they're just going, and I, I don't want to skip on any other awesome people who, who work for them. Um, but it's a really good training, and and so with that, um, it's certification is through school age children, so students, you know, anywhere from school, so for like five years old on up to oh, okay. up to like you know eighteen, maybe even twenty one, because school technically they can they can support students who are up to twenty one years old. So it's kind of for that age range, yeah. and um, it's kind of like studying it from how does learning work, you know, for, and then how does it work with the, the theories, the main theories of uh, neuropsychology? And there's a lot of evidence um, that supports a lot of these theories. And, um, but it's like, where is it breaking down? And then how do we help them? Okay. And so, um, it, you know, the schools refer to them as school neuropsych reports, um, you know, um, the tricky part though, is that there's also clinical neuropsychology, which is a completely different pathway to get there and everything like that. School neuropsychology is specifically like through, through my program that I went through, it's for school psychologists who want to have a better understanding of the neuropsychological principles. Behind why the mm-hmm. kids okay, present the way they do. I like that. Yeah. yeah. And then if the assessments tend to be a lot longer of assessments, you end up doing, for me, I tend to do about almost twice as much testing when I do the, um, I call them pediatric neurocognitive assessments, but the schools will refer to them as school neuropsych reports. But anyway, so I do about twice as much testing and then the report tends to be, you know, more than... Almost, I would say, I would say about twice as much, um, right. twice as much report writing for those. It's just a different format. Wow. So what? And I don't hope this isn't a. Uh, I hope this is a good question to ask. But um, so you've got people will get assessed in schools, but then they come to you for a more comprehensive assessment, more comprehensive than you can give a diagnosis. I mean, in your private practice, then is that you know? Or I noticed on your website you talk about even things like gate testing or. Um, just the, you kind of cover all mm-hmm. gamuts of psychological yeah. evaluations and testing in your yeah. private practice then? So through private practice, I would do, and I would refer to them typically as psychoeducational assessments. Okay. And then, um, but yes, I, I get clients from all kinds of backgrounds. Sometimes it's with the school districts helping either getting caught up on assessments or, okay. or the parent says, I don't agree with the school psych evaluation. Okay. I want an independent evaluation. And the district hires someone like myself to go in and do an extra an outside view and doing another assessment for it. So there's those, there's, there's clients that come in and say, you know, I want to find out if my kid has dyslexia 
And I explained to them, you know, the schools, if, if it's, if a child is struggling in school, oftentimes the schools will, will pay for an assessment. They'll do, they'll do their own assessment. Okay. They'll have their own school psychologist. Um, you know, and, and some people prefer if, if money is not an issue, then they'll yeah. just prefer hiring someone because then you don't, you know, sometimes I've heard them say, well, I don't want the school to have a copy right. of my report. I don't want them manipulating my child or, you know, whatever their thoughts are. And so sometimes clients will come to me that way. Um, or they say, you know, I don't trust my school. You know, we've had some bad experiences. I don't think they'll do a thorough assessment. Mm-hmm. I just want you to do a thorough assessment on my child. And then so, so I'll do a, an assessment there. Um, you know, we, we also work with uh, insurance companies, you know, oh, okay. you know, and sometimes, um, you know, right now I'm only set up with one insurance company, but, uh, you know, sometimes they'll send me clients and I'll do an autism assessment mm-hmm. and they have specific tests that they give and that they require for me to give. And it's different and they have different criteria. It's a little bit different assessment, but it's still the same idea. We're still looking at cognition and, and uh, a lot of these areas that we're looking okay. at. Okay. Um, mentioned Spanish. Are you fluent? Yeah. Okay. How fun is that? I mean, can you go into a Mexican restaurant and they talk stuff about you and you understand? Yeah. Has that ever yeah. happened? Um, actually, you know what? I will say, um, before I lived in Mexico, I always thought, man, what do people of other cultures do? They probably talk about people who don't speak their language all the time. You right. know? But when I came back from Mexico, I found that after being here for even after just 10 years, I, I was seeing that people really didn't. Uh, I had one experience, one experience where it was some 13 year olds who were just kind of oh. saying things like, Oh, look, look at his pants are ripped, you know, cause I had, I, at the time I thought they were cool, but the <laughs> pants are ripped on the bottom, yeah, yeah. you know, and they, and they said it just kind of like to themselves. And, and I just kind of helped them. I was working at the water store and, uh-huh. and I said, Oh, and, and I didn't say anything to him at the time. And as I was helping him out to the, with their stuff, I said, Oh, um, I talked to them in Spanish. They're like, oh, we're so sorry. <laughs> so I guess my point is that that's a very rare occasion, I, you know, um, which is kind of a nice thing um, right. for, for that particular culture. And, and so, you know, I wouldn't know for, for other cultures. But, uh, but I have found that, that it's um, – that people tend to be uh, – you know, it, it's nice understanding different cultures and kind of seeing where, yeah. where people come from. Okay. Uh, this was great. Right. Um, sure. Are there things that we covered that we didn't cover that you were hoping to get to, or no. kind of like, okay, well, we covered a lot of ground. And uh, thank you for diagnosing me. I appreciate that. That was nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it, we <laughs> diagnosed myself too. I, I bet. Right. Um, and where can people find you? Yeah. Uh, so the easiest way to find me would be, you know, my office is in Roseville, and um, you can just look me up, Reed Ward. Licensed educational psychologist. I have to say, uh, Roseville, California. Yeah. I, I, I would say, yeah. I, I get this uh, thing every day that now it's from a thing called Chartable, and it shows where the virtual couch is trending in different countries now. Hmm. I mean, I'm up uh, a top uh, 50 in Saudi Arabia for self-help podcast read. Wow. So I don't know if there's a Roseville, Saudi Arabia, but we got we to gotta clarify that, right? <laughs> right. Roseville, California. And currently my website, it, it may go through changes. It right now it's rewardlep.com, okay. but I may change that pretty soon. Okay, perfect. Absolute pleasure. I'd love to have you on in the future. Oh, um, you can that. diagnose me for something else. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. okay, thanks, Reed. It was really a pleasure. That was. Thank you very much. Thank you. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter
Sisters don't explore 